Welcome back to Friends and Neighbors. I'm Benjamin Wagner, and this week, singer, songwriter, and rock star, Casey Shea. Enthusiasm comes at a premium in the big city. Springsteen busking on the L, whatever. Madonna singing in St. Patrick's, feh. And that's what makes any performance featuring my pal Casey Shea such a phenomenon. Whether solo with his now defunct Undisputed Heavyweights or hot new LA-based rockers Grand Canyon, that clamor you hear is a room full of city slickers, hip, cynical, seen-it-all shoegazers, hooping and hollering and generally losing their shit. Such is the power of Casey Shea. His shows really are a thing of their own. Part vaudeville, part Vegas, all rock and roll. His stage persona is equal parts James Brown, Elvis Presley, and Bonnie. He struts, he preens, he gestures wildly. He wears sunglasses on stage and gets away with it. Because here's the secret, etched in cursive on the head of a pin. Listen closely. Casey's songs are beautiful, heartfelt, and wrenching. Like Roll Your Windows Down or The Flood, that silence you hear in the room is the sound of a pin dropping. And then finally, the absolute rarest of big city experiences, a young hip audience singing along at the top of its lungs. Lucky for me, I've benefited for years from Casey's mad collaborative talents. We've played dozens of shows together and he's the secret sauce on so many of my recordings, lending background vocals worthy of Brian Wilson himself, including on my just mixed forthcoming album recorded in Muscle Shoals, Alabama last fall. This week, we trace Casey's rock and roll road trip from Baton Rouge, Louisiana and Nashville, Tennessee to New York City and Los Angeles. We get to know his idols and inspirations and get granular on a few of my favorite of his songs. So turn it up, roll your windows down, and can I get an amen? I had one of these little record players that was, you know, a seven inch sort of thing, but for kids. And I had a record, it was an A and a B side from, I believe, Showbiz Pizza. I don't know. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I don't know if that's just a Southern thing or what. Dancing bears and all that, right? Standard dancing bears, some sort of mascot for the Showbiz Pizza. Yeah. And they, I remember the song, you know, do you love me? Do you love me? It was to that song. I don't know if they actually did that song or if it was like that song, but then the lyrics were changed to all about pizza or something like that. But yeah, that, yeah. that is definitely what I, I think of as like my first true musical memory. And I mean, I, this is three or four years old. You know? It was a pop song, right? It was a refrain. It was something you sang along with. Yeah, that's a great rock song. Where did that spark go from there? My parents weren't huge music people. They weren't like playing all their records or anything. My mom was a huge Beatles fan. Mm -hmm. I find that out sort of as I'm coming into like the ripe age of like listening to music. That explains it from an epigenetic standpoint, man. Around that time, I was obsessed with Michael Jackson, obsessed with Prince. When I moved to Florida, I'm six years old. I like music. I'm listening to it on the radio. My mom is playing a cassette while cleaning this will not come as much of a surprise, but I was 
a ham. <laughs> so, I mean, I liked performing <laughs> just being a goofy, crazy kid. Can I put a pause in that? Mm. What else was happening in the family? Now that I'm a dad, yeah, you uh, see yeah, these right? behaviors through different lenses, right? My sister is a bit of a ham, but I think that there was some sort of competition of, yeah. oh, you think that's hamming it up? Yeah. Watch this. You know, so I think I was definitely always up for one upping the showmanship. Yeah. Yes, I've, I've experienced that. <laughs> yeah. So that's probably where that came from. My mom was the best, but I wouldn't call her ham. I mean, she was a person who was very likable. Everybody thought she was the best friend sort of thing. My dad was, he's a bit more straight edge, sort of serious guy. He's that era's man's man. Man's man, yeah. And my dad worked in the golf world. Right. And he was a rules official for the PGA Tour. He was a rules guy, if, yeah. <laughs> if yeah. that doesn't tell you everything. Yeah. My dad was on the road for 33 weeks out of every wow. year, like completely gone. Wow. So my mom was essentially a single mother for half the year. And I got twice as much time with her than yeah. I did with my dad. I was surrounded by my sister and my mom. And that probably is why I'm such a sensitive and loving. Yes, guy. you are. Yes, you are. Because <laughs> they, they taught me how to love. What are the seeds that she planted and flowered that you really hold as key components of your being? Unconditional love. I mean, first and foremost. And she told me and my sister, there's nothing you can't do. Yeah. You can do anything you put your mind to. And I've at least tried to do yeah. probably the hardest thing in the world. In the world, which is like being a musician. That's one of those things that as time has gone, it's meant more and more. What did you think you were going to do when you were heading off to FSU? What on earth was in your head? I thought I was going to be a professional golfer. Is that right? That was the track. So my dad, prior to working for the tour, was a professional, right? Three or four years, he was a professional. On the tour, he's playing the tour from 75 to 79, right? Having some success, but not enough success. He had put in his time and he got very close, but like it just wasn't happening. He's also a very likable guy. Somebody on the tour, I think one of the rules officials, said, you know, we have this spot opening up. This could be a way to stay in golf. And so he takes that job. So golf was sort of always part of our lives. We moved to Florida. So Ponte Vedra is the technical town that I'm from. And any golf heads out there will know that that is the headquarters of the PGA Tour. I had a golf club in my head when I was probably three years old, but I didn't really take to it until I was about maybe 11. And that took me through high school where I made the decision of, okay, I'm going to focus on this because mm-hmm. I was also here. You ready for this? Ready. A sponsored rollerblader at one point. I was oh. like full on doing <laughs> events. I was part of this team. This is when rollerblading was huge, early 90s. That's 12, 13, 14. Yeah. I was very into that. And I'm playing golf. I was a wrestler. Are you flirting with music? Are you in plays? Are you playing in bands? Or no, not so much. You're just impressing None. the ladies when you're dating. Yeah. In this time period is when I start getting into the Beatles. You like those guys? I are you in yeah, Have you ever heard of them? Oh. Huh. <laughs> yeah. My family's from New Orleans. My grandmother lived there and we would go back to Jazz Fest every year, mm. right? The professional golf tournament coincided no around. Yeah. They sort of did that on purpose. So this one year, Bob Dylan's playing Jazz Fest. Yeah. And I'm like, okay. I mean, I've heard the name. Like, yeah. Cool. And then they're like, we got tickets to see Paul McCartney. Mm. And he mm. was in the Beatles. So I'm... I'm 
And I'm like, okay, yeah, the Beatles, got it. This is when I start seeing my mom's musical side. She's getting really excited. And she's telling me all these stories about her teenage years. Yeah. This was everything, you know. So if you've seen Paul McCartney in the last 20 years, you you know that when Live and Let Die happens, like 40-foot flames come out of the stage. As a 12-year-old kid, you know, my mind was completely blown. And then one or two songs later, he does Hey Jude, which is a song yeah. I probably had never really heard at that point. Yeah. By the end of the song, I'm singing the na-na-nas. Yeah. You know, I know the song in four minutes of hearing it. And I'm looking over to my left and there's you know, these 40-somethings just sort of dancing with smiles on their face. Everybody's singing na 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 And like this stranger like puts her arm around me and I'm just like, this is yeah. it. I mean, this More is this. Yeah. this. yeah. When we got home, I was like, I want Beatles. I want to know more. So my mom got me a hard day's night and Sergeant Peppers and it was over. When I got to know you, you were fresh from Nashville, right? Yeah. So you had some moment when you left home and went to Nashville. Was that just like, all right, I'm going to be a singer songwriter. I'm moving to Nashville. Basically. So I go to college and I meet a guy who's on the golf team and he plays acoustic guitar and piano. We're at a party one night and he's playing guitar. And I'm like, oh man, I, I like to sing. We're just having a great time. And we're like, oh, we should, we should get together and do that again. So at some point that leads into learning a bunch of covers. And then that leads into, hey, we should try and write our own song, you know? And yeah. then that was the thing that really clicked. You know, we wrote a song and I just really loved the process of sort of doing that. Within a year or so, both of us quit the golf team. <laughs> Right. <laughs> we start a band. We start a terrible college band. How was that conversation with your father? Um, he took it pretty well. I think maybe because he had been down the road. Mm -hmm. At some point, you either have the desire to work as hard as you're going to have to work, or you don't. And if you don't mm -hmm. have the desire, if you don't truly love it, then yeah. you're just going to be spinning your wheels and you're going to be making yourself miserable. This was... Mm -hmm the first time that I found something that was like, oh, I love music and I love the process of creating something out of nothing. Yeah. Got a song. Still, that feeling is great when you finish one that you're proud of. Yeah. You write something and you're like, well, I don't know what it means. And then six months pass and it's like, right. oh, now it makes sense. And that's one of those magic things about songwriting is like, that's my life. <laughs> Did you go to Nashville to sort of do an afternoon write and... You know, no. Play the bluebird at night and that sort of thing? Not at all. So this guy, Matt, Matt Reeds, we're like, okay, let's get a band. Let's start playing gigs. Let's keep writing, all this sort of stuff. Then we're like, we've got to record this stuff because we've got hits, man. Injury <laughs> 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 did not. We find a producer sort of guy in Tallahassee. Then Matt is like, have you ever heard of this guy, Duck Dunn? And I'm like, no. <laughs> and he goes, Duck is like, really famous bass player. I mean, he, he was in the Blues Brothers and he plays golf at the golf club there. I've known him since I was 10 years old, blah, blah, blah. Oh, okay. And so we meet him on the golf course, 16th hole or something like that. And we drive a golf cart out there and he's finishing up his round. He's like, oh, hey, nice to meet you and everything. And he's like, well, I'd love to hear what you guys are doing, all this sort of stuff. Now, here's the thing. <laughs> this guy is a legend, Ben. Yeah. I know nothing about this guy. He's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I'm like, 
awesome. But we're <laughs> but we're the next big thing, Matt. Like, <laughs> so so if anything, Duck is going to be like these guys got something, right? You Where know, you've I'm, been my whole I'm life. So clueless. Yeah, we go to his house. We have a CD of like five songs that we're working on. He's like, I like the songs. I like your voice. You guys got to get a better rhythm section. You know, oh, yeah. of course. I mean, yeah. you're talking yeah. to the guy who is the king of one of the greatest rhythm sections. <laughs> but he heard, you know, he was, he was like, you can sing. The songs were, you know, they were okay. Nothing special. He was like, well, you know, keep working and let's let's do this again. So we went back down and hung out with Duck a handful of times where he would wow. let us into his house. He would listen to what we're doing, blah, blah, blah. And I was, I was like, Duck. If you were to tell anybody, like, what's the secret to music? If it don't make you want to dance, don't make you want to screw, it ain't worth a damn. <laughs> <laughs> and that has been my mantra ever since. I mean, look, I don't make very danceable music, but it is so true. The groove, listen to Tom Petty, he doesn't make danceable music, right. but it grooves. He makes a couple calls, has a studio in Nashville. And me, Matt, we go to Nashville for a week. We're just like in a hotel room and in a proper studio right there on Music Row, session drummer, session bass player, session guitar player, Nashville cats, as as the saying goes. It was like, oh, so that's what a rhythm section is supposed to sound. And of course, you're in a studio and you're cutting things that everybody's just heard for the first time and yeah. then they play it and it's the best that song's ever going to sound you know yeah. it's just like yeah. oh yeah. my god so by the end of this week we're like well we got to move to nashville we're we're going to be superstars we just got to move yeah. to nashville finish up this record i tell my parents i'm dropping out of school we're moving to nashville like next week right I'm graduating four months from now, right? And they're like, Casey, listen, you've come this far. Listen. It's four months. Nothing's going to change in four months. I'm like, we've got to go now. (laughs) You know? (laughs) Wisely enough, I listened to my parents. And the week after I graduated, we drove a U-Haul. We packed up our apartment there and we moved to Nashville. I was there for almost two years. Matt gave up on the dream about a year in and I continued the band. There's a lot of moving pieces as bands do yeah, and yeah. things were falling apart. And at that time, Langan gets a job at a little place called MTV. And so at the time when my musical band sort of thing is falling apart, a lot of people were very supportive, but they were like, but you need to be in LA or New York. You guys need to go where the rock and roll is. Cause <laughs> they're probably like, please leave our town. <laughs> enough of the shirtless wonder what kind of mental conversation were you having that kept you in the game in nashville and then kept moving with music into new york delusion is the only <laughs> word that makes sense i mean i still would say that what's the definition of a crazy person is doing right. the same thing over and over getting the same results and expecting right. something different i will say that the songwriting was also a big thing because i was more into writing songs it became just, I just want to write something that lives mm-hmm. forever, sort of. And I mean, look, that's that's still sort of the dream. I'm, I've written good songs, whatever, but boy, to write Wonderful Tonight or, yeah. you know, Let It Be or The Beatles of about 30 of them, you know, to truly 
capture the real magic in a bottle. I think the difference is conditions are very different in 2020 or 2010 than they were in 1960 or 1970 or 1980, where you and I were synthesizing our musical experience. And yet our expectation is that same kind of scale. I can tell you, you have, because I sing them and I know (laughs) many others who could sing them with me. It tweaks the metric a little bit of success because the metric of success is the song, Mm -hmm. but the live forever part of it is predicated on distribution in a way. Even Beethoven, I mean, I suspect that each one of them had some access to scale in relative to the time they were in. I just think the landscape is so radically different that I just wouldn't throw out the baby with the bathwater about making it about the one good song because got many great songs. The music that I've made and the recordings that I've made are until the sun explodes or solar flares. I mean, that the yes. music will quote unquote live forever. And, That's right. and, and who knows who will find it at some point. I mean, there's plenty of artists in history who never saw their success. Right. I had this joke a long time ago about, I feel like every time I sit down to write a song, I'm like, this is it. Mm. That first flame that keeps you going on like, you know, the first hour, three hours of writing a song. And you're like, this is the best thing I've ever written. I recall meeting you and talk about hubris or idiocy saying to you, like I knew anything at all, just go all in on music, man. Just go for it. And I'm curious, how well (laughs) did that hold up? I could probably say that my wife would tackle you in that moment. Right. (laughs) I think it was definitely what I needed to hear at the moment. I remember that moment vividly. I remember we were down, like right at the Northern Escalators sort of thing. Sounds right, yeah. Because I think I'd given you maybe the Teller album or something like that, uh, which was the right. Nashville band. Oh, uh, okay, yeah. Because I think you had heard that he's a musician or whatever. I got you the record, and you were like, dude, go full in. And yeah. I wouldn't change anything because I've gotten to do unbelievable things in my life because I stayed the course and, and really tried to make that happen. Langan probably would have rather me also had a really solid day job at the time and continued working to where like now I was the vice president of something. Did that ever bother you though? Or is that an outside force? I think that if you're going to do anything, you have to go fully into it. For how long Should you chase a dream that is not happening? I don't know. And I would like to think you will know when it's time to hang it up. But anything that, if you're going to try and be world-class anything, it's got to be 100% focus on that thing. And if it's just an hour when I can find it and all that sort of stuff, it's going to be hard to really get where I think you need to get. To be great. It's the hours. At the end of the day, it really is the hours. I feel like you have such a cognizance of the universe of available choices and options that you're aware of some of the levers that you're pulling for us as listeners. Yeah, well, I certainly know what I like. Mm. And, you know, and I think- So what levers you pull for you? I mean, that's sort of the thing. It's like you have all these levers at your disposal. The longer I do this, the more I, I find myself gravitating towards certain sounds and then trying to puzzle out why it is. I'm finding the older I get that it connects back to the stuff that made me feel most interested in music to begin with. The general theme is always some sort of love 
whoever's mm-hmm. singing the song and somebody he's either trying to get to come along with him for the ride you know like that whole bruce springsteen mm-hmm. tom petty you know like just stick with me babe and <laughs> we'll mm-hmm. burn this town to the ground Everything's going to be, be all right. right. I mean, like that phrase right there is probably the general connecting theme of all my music, if I were to have one. You know, everything is always, even if it's a bit moody, it's usually like, you know, everything's going to be okay in the end. What an expression, roll your windows down. Like, oh, Casey, what a visual, what a somatic experience that is. I should tell you, so you know, listening to you has given me courage as a songwriter to say things I wouldn't have had the courage to say as plain. And Mm -hmm. I say plain as a compliment, as clear, as simple, as direct. How do you think about that when you look at, you're not alone, anything is possible. These are both like, it's going to be okay. Yeah. I would probably say that it is just out of lack of talent that I can't find a way to, <laughs> to say these things in in some po- more poetic way. If I was Bob Dylan, I'm sure <laughs> that is not that true. I would have a way to say something and evoke that emotion. No, 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 no. You have all the phrases in the world and you choose, come on, baby, let's get you home. Yeah. Not let's take you home, not I'll take you home. Let's get you home. Yeah. That's mom and sister wrapping their arms around you, right? Yeah, for or sure. something, it's that energy. I want to read you something for your, for your feedback. Casey's stage persona is equal parts James Brown, Elvis Presley, and Bono, but then comes the surprise, etched in cursive on the head of a pin. Listen closely, and the songs are beautiful, heartfelt, and wrenching. Does it sound like anybody you know? I wish I could write prose. <laughs> that was so beautiful. Does it sound like anybody I know, like you? I wrote that. That is, uh, I love that line. But what I'm interested in is this, and it goes back to you know, this idea of like the over the top, I will outperform you. I've seen you belly crawl across <laughs> bars. It's almost difficult to explain these bizarre monologues where you're like, I know him. <laughs> like, I'm pretty sure I have an idea of who's at home. 
Talk to me though about that dichotomy. Like, how do you experience that? Does that feel like the breadth of you? Like the guy who belly crawls and the guy who's going to get everyone singing along and tearing up. I do love that quote because I think it does encapsulate everything that I'm trying to be about. Whenever there's a band, Grand Canyon has its share of it. My solo thing had a bit of it. The heavyweights obviously were filled with it. You know, we're all of it. <laughs> we're all of it. And exactly. all the things. Yeah. I think there is this bit of me in my nature of I like to be the, the center of attention and a ham and all that sort of stuff. And often, I think it was just a feedback loop of the more I said, just sort of don't think about anything, just go. Mm-hmm. And if that's climbing on a bar, if that's pulling somebody's glass away and drinking their drink and then right. spitting it around <laughs> over the crowd, I mean, like I, I've I've done some things and, and people have gotten upset. <laughs> yeah, it's very not good. Really, the one thing I'd say that I miss when I see a lot of music out is like the danger aspect. You know, mm-hmm. and this goes back to, I guess, sort of Guns N' Roses and Pearl Jam. When you know, it's like you didn't know what was going to happen. The danger thing, like, it's that thing of being in a crowd and you want excitement. You're, you're out. You want a great song that's going to pull your heartstrings. But you also want to be entertained. You also want to be like, what's going to happen here? You know, I mean, like, those are the, my favorite moments mm-hmm. when I'm mm-hmm. seeing a band that's yeah. like doing something. I'm like, oh, my gosh, what's about to happen? Heavyweights were sort of 90% that and then, you know, 10% roll your windows down. (laughs) And I think the other projects have been different ratios. But it occurs to me only now, Case, that when I experience that sense of uncertainty, that danger, that risk combined with the opulence of big sound, Mm -hmm. that when you do bring it down Mm -hmm. to roll your windows down, it makes that place of ease even easier that place of comfort even more comfortable you can only know dark if you know light if in this one show you get the craziest of the crazy then you can show them the complete opposite and it's only going to resonate that much more i found early on that sometimes i day of the show i'm like okay what am i going to say you know during this part and anytime i tried to think about something that i was going to like bring into the performance it fell flat or it didn't come out right. I just have to be a complete blank mm-hmm. canvas and yeah. be yeah. open to just going wherever the night takes me. That thing of being out of that voice in your head going, okay, now say this. Because the moment you listen to that, there's a pause. There's a, there's a split second where there's thinking involved and it doesn't feel as real. It doesn't feel as in the moment. When I heard the flood the first time and played it, over and over. I'm interested in that sense of loss and longing that you have comfort with as a singer songwriter. What are you working with? What are you working out? Have you moved closer towards that stuff or further from it? In my early life, I lost a lot of people. There's a lot of death in my family, early age, between four and 10 uncles, grandparents, people dying. And then my mom died when I was pretty young. I think I'm pretty good with grief. I think I'm pretty good with death in general. But I do think that the process of writing songs a lot of the time and and some of these lyrical things are are probably 
some sort of self-therapy sessions, mm-hmm. you know. I think there is probably a lot that is aimed at myself to yeah. just back to that common thread of everything's going to be all right, even with death, even if things get as bad as I can get, there's still reason for hope. Who gave you that steady discipline of hope? It's become a bigger part of my life later on in life. I'm a big believer that this is not what it's all about. I'm a big believer in that uh, there is a transcendent thing out there. That's just always been inside me that there's more to quote unquote life than this. I've seen enough signs in my life that I just think that at my core, I do have faith and I believe, you know, that there's more than all this. What was your thinking as you put together Grand Canyon? Because to me, it seemed concerted. I'm in Los Angeles. I'm naming this band after one of the largest natural formations on earth. Well, I would say that anytime you start a band in your mid-30s, it is a monumental undertaking. (laughs) What I would call the beginnings of Grand Canyon started when I was still in New York. I had a thought in my head, like, oh, you know, it would be cool to have like girls in the band. And like started thinking about Fleetwood Mac. Right. And I had seen the Tom Petty documentary. Stevie Nicks was like a huge fan yep. of the bands and everything. And she says, man, if Tom would have asked me to quit Fleetwood Mac and join the Heartbreakers, I would have done it. And right. I started writing some more songs with that in mind. A year or so later, we decided to move to L.A., And right before I had done that, I was on tour with Wakey Wakey. Sure. I was playing guitar in his band, and I was the first of three on this tour. And the second of three on this tour was Gillette Johnson, who was playing with this guy, Matt Penn. And midway through the tour, we actually were in L.A., and it was beautiful and all this sort of stuff. And I'm in L.A., and I visit my sister who lives here. And it was just like one of those, L.A. could kind of make sense. I could see this. I got some family out here. So I, I sent Lane a text and she goes, let's do it. So at the end of this tour, I'm telling Matt, we're thinking about moving to LA. And he goes, oh, well, if you go out there, you got to meet my friend, Joe Giese. You guys are like kindred spirits musically. Like you just have so much in common. So I sort of hear that and I'm like, yeah, yeah, whatever. I'm never going to meet this guy. Right. Yeah, Gillette on this tour and Matt, they were sort of doing country flavor. Mm-hmm. She had sort of like, he was sort of guiding her in like a bit of a country or flavor of her solo stuff. And her voice is outrageous in a Stevie Nicks sort of way. While we're driving across the country, I get a Facebook message from Joe Giese. He's like, hey, I hear your friend of Matt Pins, blah, 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 blah. We should meet when you get up here, you know. I was like, wow, you know, this guy actually reached out. <laughs> so we meet up and sure enough, we're talking. And just like Matt said, I mean, very kindred spirits. And I th- think we had been talking about Matt and Gillette. And so he's like, we should, we're just trying to convince him to move out here. Three months later, through various text chains and calls, Matt and Gillette decide to move to LA. Wow. With the intent of writing songs with that sort of vision in mind. And it was amazing. It was this blossoming thing. It was like something was happening. It all fell apart 
rather quickly because they started dating. That's all another thing is this whole Fleetwood uh, Mac just idea. Just like Fleetwood Mac. Yeah. yeah. It's evident in the new single. Yeah. Just the energy is different because you're not a front man. Now, you know, I'm not knocking. You can feel it when it's a different thing, you know, yeah. immediately. And you could also get a sense of what you were going for. And that was sort of that initial vision of the band. Yeah. I like this idea of, oh, I can share the load. And not only is yeah. that going to make it more interesting from, from an audience perspective, but it'll make it a lot more enjoyable of an experience for me to just yeah. be sort of playing guitar <laughs> and being a background singer for a couple of songs. She appeared like a dream She said, don't forget it I watched her in wonder Lost in the sparkle of her eyes I was nothing but invisible Just an ordinary guy The new one, Heart of Gold Was it born of the strum pattern? Definitely started with the strum pattern We were sort of writing some stuff And none of it was feeling very Grand Canyon-y. It was like, oh, this is sort of like a different thing. And we kept writing. We wrote a bunch of songs, a lot of open tunings, a lot of Pete Townsend-y guitar, like that 16th note, like mm -hmm, Heart mm -hmm, of Gold mm -hmm, sort of totally, yeah, strumming yeah. pattern. That line came out just as making up words and was like, yeah. she's got a heart of gold. And I was like, that was that nugget that sort of opened up the-, the keeper, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so, it made you know it was something. Yeah. We had this sort of version of the song that was like two minutes and it was three or four verses sort of thing. We took it into the band and it became like this sort of John Mellencampy sort of mm. rock song. That sort of quick guitar thing was taken out. It was more of the riff. The drums were like, you know, just sort of. And it was more the one, right? Like, gang, Yeah, exactly. Gang. Yeah, exactly. That sort of thing was more the jing, jing. When the pandemic happened and all this time started passing, we thought, well, are we ever going to even play gigs anymore? Everything was sort of up in the air. Yeah. Joe and I had a conversation and just sort of said, look, why don't we just try and do it ourselves? Just the two of us, because who knows how long this is going to go on. This this seems to be never ending. And, you know, we're clearly not going back into that studio anytime soon. I had real makeshifty studio in this garage that I'm sitting in now. It was a real dump. <laughs> and Heart of Gold was one of the first ones that we started with. And we thought, okay, everything that we've been doing with the band, out the door. We're, we're scrapping we were not listening to it and feeling inspired still. You know, you go, oh, yeah. this, this feels like we're missing something. So we came into the garage sessions, like do whatever we want. Not think about the band, not think about what Grand Canyon is or what it needs yeah. to be, all that sort of stuff. Let's just take the songs and explore, deconstruct and, and yeah. see what we can find in there, you know. So we're like, okay. What if it's real acoustic-y and what if we put 12-string guitars all over it, you know, sort yeah. of thing. We start talking about Blood on the Tracks and Nebraska. We're just like throwing yeah. Yeah. shit at the wall, you know, like what if it's nine verses, no choruses, and it just is what it is. Just this guitar part is so cool, you know, that that's good enough to like take care of itself, right? 
we record some bad acoustic guitars doing sort of the form. I did write a bunch of verses. Nothing was really sort of, I mean, you know, like I'm not Bob Dylan and I'm not Bruce Springsteen. (laughs) (laughs) So I was finding a new story line that wasn't the original, like just sort of heart of gold ideas. A little bit prior to the pandemic, I decided I was going to try and read the Bible from start Ah. to finish. That ended up being a very good goal to have through the pandemic is like, I'm going to finish this giant book. I got (laughs) got nothing but time. Of course, as I'm writing songs and rewriting lyrics of songs, I'm sprinkling biblical themes and dust around back to that blood on the track, starting a song with, I was down on my knees for 40 years in the desert. And then Mm -hmm. we end up going, okay, we're not going to do nine verses because it's already boring enough at four verses. We can't keep this going. <laughs> we built the track. I had some drum tracks laying around. So like I edited all the, like the crazy bass stuff that he was doing that on that first day, we kept all of that and put 12 string all over it and everything. And we had a pretty finished version of the song. And I went to do a rough vocal with the verses I had. And sort of out of nowhere in the middle of it, you know, when you're recording something or or you're singing something with a band and you're feeling things dragging. It's like something needs to happen right here, you know? Yep, yep. And magically I, you know, I shout out, Oh Mary. Totally oh Mary. And, so, yeah. and I was like, yeah. I was like, Ooh, okay. Deeper. Like yeah, maybe, yeah. maybe this whole biblical thing, I can really tie it all together because it, there was a story happening with this woman, this savior figure for this guy. I put Oh Mary all throughout the song. I mean, in, it's the thing I sang back to you. Yeah. <laughs> it's not the only hook, but it's maybe the most prominent hook. It's one of the things we talk about when we talk about you, the idea that you work and rework. Here's such a great example of why. Let's start with the strum. You had it, you threw it out, you brought it back, right? Yeah. You had a tight little pop song, then it became this long thing, and then you went back to the pop song. But if you hadn't <laughs> done that, all that work, you wouldn't have gotten Mary. Yeah, Exactly. You are not alone. I don't know how much you've been paying attention to friends and neighbors, but one of the things we keep coming back to, oftentimes we feel alone in our own troubles or worries or what have you, or in the middle of the night. And the fact that most of us have some shit that makes us feel alone. Where were you coming from? So prior to moving out here to the suburbs, Joe and I actually lived in the same fourplex apartment complex for about Uh, two or three years, which was great for the writing process. If he had an idea, I could just come downstairs. In that same time period of playing with these open tunings and everything, that one's, I think, in drop D, it just all of a sudden, you know, has that new thing. All these harmonics are swirling. He called me, he goes, yo, man, I think I'm hearing voices or something. I'm working on this guitar part. You got to come check this out. I come down 
and he's playing this guitar part and his place, you know, real wooden open sort of place. And it was just really filling the room just out of this idea of him hearing voices or whatever. I was like, are you hearing voices? You know, like that melody with that lyric just sort of came out. It all came pretty quickly. That song specifically felt so coming through me. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm, when mm -hmm. I read the lyrics and what the lyrics are sort of saying, to me, it's what the Bible is all about. You're not alone. Be not afraid. Everything's going to be all right. You know, the chorus is... At the end of the day, when the work is done, do you lay there longing for the times when you were young, asking questions, questioning what it all meant? Just that idea of longing and questioning of what is life about? What is the point of all of this? You are not alone. Come to me. Again, it just feels to me like that was a message for me through the transcendent world that I think is out there. And it's something that I think I needed to hear. Sometimes you write songs and you don't know what they're about. And then six months down the road, you go, oh gosh, I know exactly what that's about now. All these words were just coming out and it was so plain and simple. It was like, well, I'm not going to question it. I think everybody has the ability to connect to that transcendent world, but that Maybe people don't listen close enough or don't have enough confidence, don't practice enough. Because if you strum a guitar long enough and sing out loud, that's connecting to it. This kind of cosmic radio or something. I think it's there for everybody, but I don't know why people don't listen closer or trust it. Or I don't know, is it practice? I think the same thing can be said for prayer. The more you do it and the more you sort of establish that connection of just being silent and speaking with faith that something is out there listening, the better you get at it, the more answers you get. You know, there's a communication, but you have to work at it. It's reflection. It's like, I mean, I guess most people just don't take the time to get still. In this world, it's very hard and it's only getting harder. Last one. And you know where I'm going, bro, that song, man. I mean, I know that one's not super duper recent, but was it some kind of healing or coping for you too? Were you going through something? Were you helping someone through something? Because not unlike the song we were just talking about, You're Not Alone, it has this sense of like, it's going to be all right. You yeah. Know? Come on, baby. Let's get you home. It's like me talking to me being like, come on, let's get you yeah. home. Oh. I think it's time to turn it in. I'm glad that it has meant something to you. Oh, yeah, big time. I was going through a lot of questioning everything. I mean, this this was sort of late in my New York years, not knowing what was next, all that sort of stuff. So there was a bit of inner turmoil, obviously, that sort of goes in the song. But the real person that I had in my mind was Langan's sister, known Langan since we were teenagers. So I knew her younger sister who had moved to New York since she was like 10. I'd seen this girl sort of grow up. She was going through stuff. I was going through stuff. And we were butting heads a bit here and there. She was sort of like uh, a bit of the muse who I was envisioning singing to, Mm -hmm. you know, wanting to just sort of put her in your arms and be like, look, 
it's going to be okay. I know you're going through a rough patch and you don't even want to talk to me about it <laughs> because of blah, blah, blah. Now, about a month after writing it, Hurricane Sandy came along right. yeah. and flooded New York almost in a way it had some sort of blossoming in that sort of way of like, oh man, a lot of crazy shit is going down here. And the first time I played the song, it was like the week after Hurricane Sandy where mm. the lights were still out in the yeah. Lower East Side and stuff. It just had so much weight for me as I was playing and like I was getting choked up playing, you know, that happens sometimes yeah, <laughs> when, yeah, yeah. when like you're singing something and because of what's going on around you and all this sort of stuff, it hits you in the moment and you're, you're so in the moment that, you know, yeah. it can sort of spill over a bit. Where's home? When you think about that for you, when you think about singing to her, where is that? I was going through my own inner turmoil and thinking, okay, here's this, person who's going through a struggle and getting them into a cab. Let's get you safe and into your bed sort of thing. But then there was also, you know, what am I doing with my life? Why am I still even playing music? What am I doing? There's that angle of, is it time to give it all up? Is it time to just hang up the clubs? Friends and Neighbors is an essential industries production in association with Wagner Brothers. Learn more at friendsandneighborshow.com and please help your friends and neighbors discover our show by sharing, liking, commenting, and rating. Really, it makes a difference. Mr. Rogers and Me is available on Apple TV, Amazon Prime, and PBS DVD. Until next time, it's a good feeling to know we're lifelong friends. Out in the dead of night You're trying to see the light you don't know where you went wrong Not sure where you belong I can see fire And I can see the rain She's never seen it this way I've been watching you Testing your faith I think it's time to turn it in Come on baby Let's get you home
See the rain, she never seen 